Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're excited to welcome Dr. Tiffany Lyle, Assistant Professor of Veterinary Pathology at Purdue University. So welcome, Tiffany. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here today, and I'm so excited to share uh, my scientific journey and also to share uh, a bit about the science that, that we do in, in my laboratory. So I'm going to um, share a presentation with you all. All right, and I am going to uh, walk you all through the comparative pathology of the blood-brain barrier, but I'll start by sharing how I got to sitting in this chair. Um, so I received my uh, bachelor's degree and my veterinary degree from the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. Then actually came up here to Purdue and did my residency in anatomic pathology. Went out to the National Cancer Institute just outside of Washington, D.C. and did my PhD research, which really blossomed my um, interest to continue to pursue research for my career. And then I started on faculty um, here at Purdue. So what do I do every day? What, is, what do all those degrees allow me to do? So I actually do many different things um, throughout the day, uh, all centered on, on research as my central mission. So I lead the Comparative Blood-Brain Barrier Laboratory. I know that's a mouthful and I'll walk you all through uh, what that involves. I also uh, work with uh, investigators all over campus, anybody who is using um, animals in their studies as a veterinarian and as a, and as a pathologist and able to um, walk, their, walk through their studies and, and work with them in those, and their use of those animals. I also have a wonderful opportunity to teach uh, both pathology residents and veterinary students I uh, teach histopathology, so just basically teaching um, residents how to interpret complex cases. And then I teach veterinary students all about cancer, all of the molecular nuts and bolts involved in uh, cancer biology. So I also have a wonderful opportunity uh, to take students to Tokyo, Japan. I lead a study abroad program to Tokyo in the summer. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to run it this year due to COVID-19, but we look forward to going back as soon as we can. It's, it's just a wonderful opportunity for our students, um, any, any student enrolled at Purdue is able to attend, uh, participate in that program. So let's get into the blood-brain barrier. So the, what is the blood-brain barrier? So the blood-brain barrier is a complex vascular structure that's actually just in the brain. So it's one of the most tightest, um, tightest structures in the brain. So when we think about vasculature, we think about veins and arteries most often, but there's a really small uh, vascular network that's actually called capillaries. And um, capillaries are the, are the end stage, and when you think about that arterial network of taking blood to a tissue, um, and that's the, that's the smallest structure, that's the end of the road. So it's composed of endothelial cells. So endothelial cells make up the um, intersection. It has a basement membrane here in yellow, at, um, pericytes that are embedded in these, um, in the basement membrane, astrocyte feet, which make up the outermost layer. So together, all of these layers work to prevent any sort of toxins or um, nasty chemicals, drugs, um, anything that shouldn't be in the brain from getting into the brain. So that's why that barrier is super important in protecting our brain so that we can continue to be who we are. So that, so that we can continue, I can continue to be Tiffany and you can continue to be whoever you are. And these 
capillaries actually protect um, the brain from any sort of invasion. However, um, in disease, particularly in cancers that grow in the brain, this barrier can get damaged. So that's, that's the, the why of our lab. We're interested in understanding cancers that migrate to the brain, most notably actually lung cancer, um, particularly non-small cell lung cancer. So non-small cell lung cancer is the most common type of lung cancer um, involving actually 85% of lung cancer cases. Um, there's been over, in, in 2019 alone, there were over 200,000 new cases and over 142,000 deaths from lung cancer. Um, with that, 56% of the lung cancer patients actually uh, present with metastasis in that these um, tumors from the lung have been identified in other tissues like liver, also identified in uh, bone, and especially the brain. So we're interested in finding um, new ways to actually address and treat those metastatic tumors, particularly those in the brain, because once they get to the brain, they're really going to impact um, the survival of patients and impact who they are. As I mentioned, once we get invasion into the brain, we lose our, our um, sense of self. So I'm going to go over our model here. So how, how do we actually evaluate um, the uh, brain metastasis? So what we do is we, you're, here you're looking at an ultrasound of the heart of a mouse and the left ventricle. So these animals are, are under anesthesia. And um, while they're sleeping, they cannot feel any pain as the needle delivering the cells is injected into the left ventricle. So um, after this time period that, that they're under anesthesia, we wake them up and then are able to do, to image them actually, and see the cells as they migrate through the body. So here we have, we can see the cells, particularly the highest number of cells here in orange in the, in the brain. And we also get uh, some migration of cells into the kidney and, and other organs in the body. But we're most interested in those in the brain. So then these cells are able to colonize the brain for about six weeks. And then within six weeks, we can see actually these tumors growing here um, within, within the, the brain tissue. So we can evaluate them and look at them um, more closely to see if there's, see what damage has occurred and what we can use to target the brain. So I, I would like to show our, our most striking data and that is in those astrocyte infeed. I mentioned in the diagram that I, I beginning the astrocyte infeed make out the outermost layer of the blood brain barrier. And here in the upper corner, you can see the astrocytes here again, that making up that outer layer. So in these images, we're looking at brain from a normal mouse that had no tumors involved, the brain around the tumor region, and then here the tumor, which is traced in white. And in all of these images, I've labeled the astrocyte in feet. Again, these, these blue feet here are actually labeled green. I've labeled the endothelial cells in red, and together, the green and red make yellow. So um, in the control brain, we can see that these capillaries are all yellow. So the, the astrocyte infeed and endothelial cells are on top of each other as they're supposed to be. And when we look at the brain around the tumor, we can see a little bit of red peeking out, but by and large, similar to what we see in the control, that there's, that we still have that uh, combination, that co-localization, that yellow color. 
But when we look at the tumor here, so the tumor again is traced in, in white, and so all this here in the center, all we see is red. We've lost all of that green staining, so that means that those astrocyte in feet are lost. We have um, damage to the blood-brain barrier. So this is important data for, for my laboratory to know that when we work with um, understanding um, understanding drug delivery and understanding keeping that blood-brain barrier as a, as a possibility for manipulation, that these astrocyte end feet are an area that we can look at. So again, looking at the control over here, all these yellow capillaries and all of that is lost in that brain metastasis. So again, we can see that's how we can look at um, changes in the blood-brain barrier. So a little bit more about astrocyte end feet. They're an important uh, membrane protein. Um, they have a control, the flow of, of, of blood. They are important in controlling ions. Um, they have a, a role in uh, migration of other astrocytes. So astrocyte and feet have been known to have um, implications in other diseases, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, they've been uh, They've been misplaced and, and decreased. And um, ALS, you have an increase overall in aquaporin-4. And Parkinson's disease, also loss of um, aquaporin-4, multiple sclerosis, and MS. Um, there's variations in aquaporin-4. You can get increase or decrease traumatic brain injury or breast cancer. So not only in, um, in lung cancer do we see changes in astrocyte infeed, there are other diseases that, that this is, um, has shown to play a role. So uh, we can use what we know about other diseases to improve drug therapy. So ultimately, the, the overarching goal of my group is to improve drug, drug therapy, improve the targets of those drugs so that we can actually shrink tumors and ultimately improve not only survival, but the quality of life of patients. So thank you. Wow. That, wow. And, and so is what you're doing um, with veterinary uh, with pathology, mm -hmm. is that transferable? I mean, it sounds like it's kind of transferable over to people then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. One of the uh, core missions of my laboratory is, is one medicine, to think about how as we um, model diseases in animals that um, can then be reflected and take that data into um, human hospitals into the clinic. So my laboratory is very unique in that we, um, many of the diseases and um, organ systems that we study not only are applicable in animals, but in humans as well. Yeah, I get tired of saying it. It seems like it, the more I, I interview scientists like yourself, the, the less I realize I knew. Uh, <laughs> I never would have thought that things going on over on the vet side of things is actually helping uh, people. And yes, that, yes. I mean, there, it's almost, you we have to work hard to not uh, be able to help animals and humans with what we're doing and the science that we uncover. That is so cool. I, I, let's start with how you got, I, I know you gave us your career path, mm -hmm. but I, I'm kind of curious, what was your passion? So um, actually, as a, as a child, my, my passion growing up, I always wanted to be 
a news anchor, believe it or not. And I, um, but as I, as I got to kind of doing my own fake stories and investigating things, I really ended up getting to know a lot of scientists, whether through school or, or through um, friends of the family. And just asking them more questions got me uh, more engaged in science and giving me more, um, more opportunities. So I um, just really, I, th I think my, my passion uh, for knowledge and my passion to learn new things is what, what got me um, so interested in research. Oh, I love that. What were some, some of the first research experiences that you had? So actually, I, my, my very first um, science fair, uh, actually when I was a high school student in the ninth grade, I uh, was able to work with an ophthalmologist and um, was able to basically look at an images of, the, of his clinical cases and um, actually kind of take basically make a uh, trivia for people to understand kind of what glaucoma, how glaucoma may appear versus a uh, fungal infection versus somebody exposed to diabetes. So that was kind of interesting for me to look at those images and, and understand those changes. And then as I got to, in college, I um, did studies in biochemistry and yeast. And then I, when I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian and get involved in research there, I got involved more with animal model design. Now, our, whoa, it, and with the blood, say I'm still on the blood brain, barrier, yeah, blood brain barrier thing. It's because that's what I think uh, you couldn't stop me with. And uh, when I started seeing that, looking at those pictures and thinking about it, so, I mean, I know people who's had like brain tumors and things like that. And so I, how do, you morph into and it's it seems like is that basically all at this point your your lab mostly focuses on now is how things cross that barrier in order to um, treat uh, a cancer then yeah so the, the central focus of my laboratory is to understand how we can improve therapies through the blood brain barrier in primarily in metastatic lung cancer and also in traumatic brain injury so um, right now, and that's simply just because of the, of the manpower I have. We, there isn't really no limit of the diseases that we can look at. Any disease that impacts the brain impacts the blood-brain barrier. Uh -huh. I had a question about when you were talking about, okay, the, is it androcytes? The, astrocytes? Uh, astros, okay, astrocytes. And how are, are those only found in the brain? It looked like we were sort of looking at a cell mm -hmm. or something. And then are those... Um, in both like cells in the brain, but then also other cells, or is it something, is that like a feature you would see throughout the body? Yeah, so, so astrocytes are part of an important family of cells called glia. And we find glia throughout, throughout the brain or, or neuroparenchyma. So um, really important um, cells that are, can be protective, and, but also when, we, when they get too numerous or don't do their jobs, then they can actually cause damage to the brain. So they're what we call a double-edged sword. So um, they can do, it can be, when they're, when they're doing the right thing, they control vascular flow and they protect the brain. But when you get too many of them, it's a big problem, or like I said, if they're not doing their job. Now, um, other cells that are found throughout the body that are part of the blood-brain barrier would be endothelial cells and also the pericytes that I mentioned. However, 
um, the endothelial cells and pericytes are usually found about one-to-one -one, um, in the brain. However, in heart or in muscle, you may only find one pericyte for three or four endothelial cells. Oh. And what advantage does that have? So again, the, the blood-brain barrier, its key feature is that it is largely impermeable. So all of those pericytes help to tighten that barrier. Whereas in the muscle, in lung or liver, in heart, you can have looser, um, looser, uh, basically a more permeable vasculature, mm -hmm. and that would allow uh, proteins or, or other components to uh, penetrate into the uh, organ parenchyma. Okay. Wow, that's a uh, holy moly. Uh, it's, that's that's more than I knew about biology in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the fact that you started off by asking questions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you say the thing about being a reporter and realize asking questions, and because we tell students that a scientist is just someone with questions trying to figure out answers to them. Oh yeah, I mean, one of the things that I mean that that's the greatest, really one of the greatest things about my job is that I, there, you never run out of questions to ask and run out of things, ways to approach things. Because even if, you know, in the experiment I showed you, if some, sometimes, you know, we may do an experiment for the 10,000th time, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work. So we have to go back and say, well, why didn't it work? What, what changed? What, what do we need to change to, to actually make it work? And then also when we think about other diseases, I said that we only do... Uh, right now, metastatic lung cancer and TBI, but even if in current events, like if we need, we're going to eventually um, evaluate what's occurring in the blood-brain barrier in um, coronavirus, in um, other in other models as well. So it's really important to um, to really just not stop asking questions. And I know, you know, oftentimes it's easy, and I and I did this all the time too. Um, as a student is to say, ah, oh, that's a stupid question. I, I shouldn't ask that question. But, you know, there really is no question that, that shouldn't be asked. I mean, if may, it may be that it could have been something that perhaps was overlooked in the reading, but, you know, you just need to go back and, and reread it again, and, and that's okay. And then I think you, if you go back and reread something that they've had a question about, you get a new insight and a new perspective on that. And, um, you know, maybe there's something that could have been missed in a, in a diagram. You say, hey, let me go back and look at this text with a diagram. But, um, you know, learning how to be curious is definitely something that uh, allows scientists to be really productive in their careers. I love your comments on that. And I did, do you have any tips for kids? I think sometimes kids struggle a little bit. They're asked so many questions, but then when we ask them to think of questions, they struggle. Like, well, I don't know. <laughs> it just feels very overwhelming. Do you have any tips for kids to help them develop those questioning skills? Yeah, I mean, even I, I think, and, and when I think of questions, I, I, um, I try to write them down, even about just, you know, sometimes I look at the clouds, and sometimes you, you know, you see the weatherman that's telling you how, how if the cloud, cloudy front is, is coming in or, or going, but then, do you ever wonder why clouds have 
one particular shape in one area of, of the sky and a different shape in the other area of the sky, even though the weather is the same in both areas. So I, I think of questions like those, and I, I don't know the answer to that. Like why in some areas you use perfectly blue, and then you have two, one cloud that looks like a dinosaur, and then one cloud that looks like the Empire State Building on the same day. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I do. I like that. Just all of them, honoring yeah. all of those questions. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I, I just write questions down, save them in, in the notes of my phone. So I know you guys have your phone, so just yeah. save them in the notes portion. And when you happen to have a chance to meet a weatherman or meet somebody or to tweet them or reach out to them, send them those questions. They'll, they'll love it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, record it right in your phone. That's a great. <laughs> say, as you were talking, I had so many questions come up uh, <laughs> with myself. It's, it's yeah. the thing, the blood-brain barrier. Are you mainly doing looking at what then uh, different medicines? Is that mainly what you're researching? What how different medicines will react to that? And so, so great question. COVID. Once you said like the COVID thing, I thought, oh, well, I didn't think about the fact that it could, what its interactions would be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, because we don't know a lot about the um, biological patterns of the blood-brain barrier, so what my group is focused on right now is to understand those biological patterns, to understand the pathology first. And then I have a, a great opportunity here at Purdue um, to work with chemists who are developing compounds and drugs to use on, on different diseases. Okay. So, yes, so as, a, as a veterinarian, my, my focus is on the animals and the biology, but as a researcher, I'm able to find others to help me to then um, target the diseases. So that's another really fun thing about being a researcher is that you're, even if you don't have the area of, of expertise, so I, I cannot, um, in my skill set, create a, a drug in the laboratory. But that doesn't mean that I can't reach out again and ask questions and, and get to meet other um, friends and colleagues who can help me and my group and compounds that they've developed and use in our model system. So they may not have expertise in working with animals and working in model systems, but I do have a, a compound that may be effective. So it's really important to, to work as a team to solve these, these problems. Wow. Oh, perfect, perfect. And I love that. I love that you bring that up too, the collaboration point. And anything we want to do, we need to collaborate with people who know more than us in different areas. And it mm -hmm. takes all of that knowledge to get things done. And I love that you point that out. And I also want to say that, um, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly tried to um, present in um, accurate view of my story, but sometimes I have team members, just like I'm sure you guys sometimes have lab members, where, you know, it's simply not a good fit, you know, and that's okay, because there's a lot of people on earth, and there's a lot of people around, and sometimes you just got to find, find a good fit, so it may not be the right fit the first time, but um, usually in, in subsequent times, you can find a, a good, a good way to, to work together to, to solve problems. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for your time. We really appreciate this. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.